We are in the book of Judges. Tonight, this afternoon, we begin part three, part three of our study through the book of Judges. If you are just joining us this afternoon, Israel finds themselves in a time of crisis. Israel finds themselves in a transitional period. The book of Judges starts off in the same way the book of Joshua starts off, minus one name. Joshua starts off, your leader Moses is dead. Judges starts off, your leader Joshua is dead. It's a little challenging when something like that happens. It's challenging for the people. Transitional period, for sure. Time of crisis, absolutely. In the book of Judges, you will see some of the best examples of the worst behavior ever. It is self-destructive at its core. And it is found in almost every chapter of this book. And the people find themselves in constant cycles of sin. They sin, they rebel, they disobey God. They cling to other gods. We cling to other gods sometimes. Other things that steal us and our affections away from God, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's school. School can do that sometimes. It can. It can become an idol for us. And so as a result, they fall into idolatry. They rebel against God. God then raises up foreign nations to come and, well, give them a good whooping. And when that happens, the people cry out to God for help. They cry out to Him in those moments. And God, being merciful, so merciful, keep that in the back of your mind when we're going through these stories. He raises up a deliverer or a judge, and this judge thus delivers them from the foreign threat. And then the people are good for a while. They're on their best behavior for, for a while. And then the cycle repeats itself. Some of the most self-destructive behavior you'll see in the Bible can be found in the store. So, that's a little bit of an introduction if you're here for the first time tonight. And we're going to go ahead and jump in. Judges chapter 1, starting in verse 21. But the people of Benjamin, this is one of the tribes of Israel, they did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Remember back in verse 8, the people of Judah, they were dealing with the same issue, trying to take Jerusalem. They did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. At this point in the story, the narrator, Samuel, we think it's Samuel, but we're not, we're not for sure if he's the author. So the narrator's tone here in verse 21 is going to begin to change. And you'll see that in the verses to follow. The narrator will become increasingly pessimistic. See, this was supposed to be a successful military operation. But now... It's going to turn into an expedition of compromise. Key word right there. It's going to turn into an expedition of compromise. It's not supposed to. At all. 
but that's what will happen. The commitment that Israel once had is now waning. And and when I say the commitment that they once had, this goes back to Joshua 24. Remember Joshua gives his famous speech, Choose today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people respond, We'll serve God too. And Joshua says, No, you won't. And they say, "Uh Uh-huh. And he says, Okay, then we'll see. In those moments, right, maybe you've experienced, I don't know, there's some church retreat, spiritual emphasis week, I don't know. You've got those moments, I think, and you're just passionate. You're, we use the term, on fire, right? You're excited. But then what happens? It begins to wane. Compromises begin to seep in that just three weeks earlier you said you'd never make. And, and, and now you're back there again, and, and this is going to happen to the people right now, right here. There's no additional details of Benjamin's campaign except to identify their adversaries, the Jebusites who are living in Jerusalem. And remember now, this is the second time one of Israel's tribes has attempted to take the city, the second time that one of Israel's tribes have tried to drive them out, and, and they haven't. And they won't until King David comes on the scene years later. And so they only have kind of a partial victory, referencing back to verse 8. Only partial, not full. And then the narrator shifts gears. The pessimism is going to continue into verse 22. Verse 22, it says this, The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. Different location, different tribe, And the Lord was with them, and the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now, the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Verse 22-26 focuses on the house of Joseph. But of course you say there is no tribe of Joseph. All of Joseph's brothers, well, their names represent the different tribes. Joseph, no tribe named after Joseph because Joseph got the the double blessing. And, And so what you see, it's Joseph's two sons. And that's the double blessing. He from Manasseh, And so when the narrator focuses here on the house of Joseph, we remember there is no tribe, and so specifically he's drawing our attention to Ephraim and Manasseh, those tribes here, and a more limited reference to them. And what do we see? Well, it's laid out in a kind of nice narrative for us. They go out, they do a reconnaissance mission, takes you almost back, maybe the story in Joshua, when the spies went and reconned Jericho. But they go and they they check it out, Luz, and then they meet a man coming out of the city. They approach him and they say, can you show us a way in? If you can show us a way in, then, well, we can work out an arrangement with you. We can make a deal and we'll be kind to you and we'll let you and your family live and everyone's happy. Okay. And so that's exactly what takes place. Once again, very similar in many ways to the story in Joshua 2, dealing with Rahab. 
similar and yet different, a lot different. You see, back in Joshua 2, when Rahab helps the spies out, the spies make her no such deal like the one seen here. They make no such arrangements like the one seen here. They make no such promises like the one seen here with this Canaanite traitor from their perspective. Rather, she helps them. She hides them. And still, even after she hides them, they still don't make a deal with her. It's only after her declaration of faith when she says to the spies, the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. And it's only at that point do they make arrangements with her, do they make a deal with her. At that point, I think from their perspective, she is an Israelite. From, from, from their perspective, like she, you'd say, she, may, she just met the Lord at that point in the story. But in this story, in this instance, there's no call for this man's testimony. See, in this story, there's no call for this man to identify with Israel or with Israel's God. There's no demand for him to recognize Yahweh's claim on the land. And yet, what do we see happen here? Well, they... Verse 24, please. They deal kindly with the man. Well, that's nice. You know it's not nice by how I just said it, right? <laughs> it's not nice. There's a problem. You got kindly? You want to throw kindly up on there? There's kindly. You can see, a lot of uses. The problem with kindly, being kind, is that this word conveys loyalty to the individual that they're being kind to. It conveys almost a joint obligation. It is from the Hebrew word hesed or hesed. It is a, technically a, a covenantal term. You say, okay, so, so where's the problem? You know, I'm taking you to a problem. The problem is they're not supposed to deal kindly with this man or anyone else. Deuteronomy 7.2. You got it up on the screen? So the problem comes here. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenants, right? No arrangements, no deals with them. You show them no mercy. See, that's the problem. They're not supposed to be treating this man kindly conveying loyalty or some sort of joint obligation. They're not supposed to be making backroom deals with this man. Why? God said you wipe them all out. That's why. This is a big difference with Rahab. They made no deals with Rahab. Not even after she helped them. It wasn't until her declaration of faith, which from their vantage point, I think at that point, they saw her as one of them. That's not happening here. And so this is a very serious problem. The, these guys have a very short-sighted view. They have a short-sighted view. Maybe in the moment they're thinking, we just got to take the city, right? This is maybe an ends justifies the means type of thing. We're just going to take the city. We're going to take the objective. Here's a guy. He can help us. Why not? Let's just make a deal. Because 
God doesn't just care that they take the city. God cares how they take the city. It's important. He doesn't just care that they take the city. He's also concerned with how they take the city. And how they take the city is going to violate another directive that he gave to them. And that's a problem. And of course, you think about the consequences that are going to follow. I'm not sure if they even imagined the consequences that would come as a result of this sort of compromise. They take the city, everything's good, they let the man go. And what does the man go and do? He goes and builds the city all over again at another place. Call the same loss. It's a problem. See, I'm watching Andy Griffith the other night. Do you guys Andy Griffith fans? Come on, guys. Safe for the whole family, right? I mean, you don't need to leave the kids at home. Bring them right on in. They tell Opie, Opie, go, go clean your room. And, and Opie goes, cleans his room. Kind of. He gets all the garbage and stuff and throws it under the bed. It's Opie, right? He gets all the garbage and stuff and throws it, stuffs it in drawers. All clean, Dad. All clean, Aunt B. It's not clean, right? It's not clean. He just moved the garbage from one area to another. They go, they take the city. The man, who they make the deal with, leaves, rebuilds the city. See the problem? Literally, the garbage got moved from one place to another. And that's a problem. That's a problem. And I'm not even sure if, if they're even thinking about, huh, this might be a bad idea. Huh, I wonder what the consequences could be from this. They come. They happen. When, when we compromise, they do. That happens. Okay? It'll happen. I mean, fill, fill in the blank. And Some guys say, yeah, well... I'll take purity, because seriously, it's one of those things I can just go like this and throw anywhere in the room, and I'm, I'm gonna, it's going to make some like legit application. How, how's it going with purity? Little Billy? I don't know why I called him Little Billy, but... Little Billy, how's it going with purity? Oh, it's going, it's going real good, Joe. Man, me and my girlfriend haven't fallen in blah, 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 blah this long. Okay, cool, so it's going well. Yeah, anything else you need to tell me? Well, I mean... We haven't fallen, but I mean, I, do, I did re-download about six gigs of porn on my computer, if, if that counts. A little bit. Right? And that's sometimes, I think, how we approach sin. Oh, well, I, I'm not doing this stuff anymore. But look at all that garbage over there. We took the city. Yeah, kind of, sort of, but not really. That guy's just going to go and he's going to rebuild it. Why? Because God's very clear. And you've totally disobeyed his instructions. It doesn't just matter that you take the city. How you take it matters. How you take it matters. Well, that's a problem. And you see the tone of the narrator become even more pessimistic in the following verses where we just see case after case, example after example, after more compromise. Verse 27. 
Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megadu and its villages. Good grief. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land, and when Israel grew strong, verse 28, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahal, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher, one of the other tribes of Israel, they did not drive out the inhabitants of Acho or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Agzib, or of Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali, another tribe, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. Verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan. Dan's another tribe. They pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Haris, in Ajalon, in Shalbim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. Lots of compromise going on here. Not singling anyone out. They all seem to be equally guilty. Lots of compromise. Lots of failing to really totally, wholeheartedly, and fully obey God. That's not good. Well, here's what God has to say. Here's what God has to say. Here's, here's God's response. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So we have this angel of the Lord. Now, you guys are all super smart, so I doubt there's any misunderstanding here when it says angel of the Lord. But sometimes there is. You'd be surprised. There's a lot of popular misconceptions when it comes to angels. I don't know. Nine months ago, I was praying with two guys. The one guy had just shared how his grandfather had died. And so the other guy said, well, I'll pray for him. He said, dear God, for this man's grandfather, I pray that you would give him an excellent set of wings, better than any of the angels. And if you could work it out to give him a matching halo, Better than any of the angels as well. Amen. I was like, is this, is this guy for real? <laughs> I'm not making that up. Okay, I'm not. Um, I said, why, why do you uh, 
think that angels look like that. He said, oh, well, when you do a Google search Im image, that's how it comes up. Uh, that's true. I mean, I, makes sense. I'm not making this up, yeah. Uh, there's obviously, I think, some popular misconception. I don't think there's anybody in here that has a misconception about it. You guys are squared away, folks. Um, but when it says uh, the angel of the Lord, I think we need to understand this, I think, contextually to really squeeze it like a sponge. And I think we have a, a graphic here for angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord. This, this Sometimes some commentators believe this is a physical manifestation of God himself. But at the very least, uh, the word half the time, half the time is used not to describe some feathery winged creature, but rather as a divinely appointed and authorized envoy. That's, that's what I want you to think, okay? When it says angel of the Lord, I want you to think, this is a divinely appointed, authorized envoy from God to bring a very important message. That's what's happening here. And he goes up from Gilgal to Bochum. Now, I thought this was interesting because I didn't know the answer to it. And maybe you guys can tell me what you think the answer is at small group this week. But there, there really is, and it's puzzled many commentators, why the angel of the Lord travels from Gilgal to Bochum. Why not just appear at Bochum? Why not just arrive at Bochum? Why did he have to come from Gilgal to Bochum? Really, no legit explanation given that I can offer in case you see them. You're like, oh, that's interesting. He traveled from there to there. I don't know. I would have just appeared if I was, you know, some special envoy representative. But he comes, and here's the important part, the message, okay? He comes to Bochum, and literally that word translates weeping or weepers, and it gives us a, a taste, right? A, a foreshadowing. It's hinting of what's to come. And it's not good. And so here's Here's what he says. Here's the message. This is as if God is speaking himself. I brought you up from Egypt. I did. You didn't. I did. And into the land that I swore to give to your fathers, I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant, no promise, no deals, no arrangements with any of the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So there's that. And this is not good. This covenant, this promise, okay? I promised you, you, you made promises to me, and I've been faithful. I've kept my promises. You guys have not. You haven't. And, and part of that covenant say, okay, well, that's probably a reference to Sinai, but more specifically, this covenant, this promise he made was to give them victory over the land, to give them victory over the inhabitants of the land. Remember, Joshua has done most of the heavy lifting in the military campaigns and operations. Judges should literally be them walking in, setting up shop, planting their flag. I mean, the, the vast majority of battles were accomplished under the general Joshua, and they're totally dropping the ball. I mean, we had the entire list, tribe after tribe after tribe after tribe. Yeah, we decided not to go fight there, 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 there. We just decided to kind of settle in. It was more comfortable. Sin is comfortable. Sin has no problem with you settling in. At all. And he says, you have not obeyed my voice. 
It's not good. You have not obeyed my voice. This is a very distinct feature of the Israelite faith. Because the Canaanite gods neither spoke nor did they hear anything. You've not obeyed my voice. In other words, you've heard my voice. In other words, there's no ambiguity right now. No, huh? I wonder what he said, right? Did he, did he, right? Did he really say that we can't eat of that tree? Is that, I don't know if I heard that right, right? Did he? Yep, he said that. But you know, that we like to do that, right? Well, did, did, did God really say this? I mean, I don't, I don't even know if this, this really counts. I mean, is that really a sin if I do that or I don't do that? This is a distinct feature of, of the Israelite faith. More to the point, this is a distinct feature of our faith, church. Right? Because we, God tells us what he wants. God tells us his expectations. Like, Israel is never left guessing. Huh, I wonder what God wants us to do. Nope, God says do that. Oh, okay, that's really clear. Right? There's no ambiguity here for the people. They know what God wants them to do. You've heard my voice. The envoy says. And I hear people say, I really struggle, Joe. If I could only hear from God. If God would only make it super clear what his will for me is. Is that all you want? Oh. Well, why don't you try opening up this book? People say, I just want to hear from God. I just want to know what his will is for my life. Open up your Bible. So some of you guys, you come here, maybe you're sitting here, and you haven't even opened up this book all week long, or two weeks, or three weeks. And then you start complaining, oh, I don't hear from God. It's like yelling at me and saying, yeah, Joe, you've never called, you've never texted. And I'm like, dude, you've had your phone off the whole month. Like, why are you upset? Why are you upset with God when you've had your phone off the whole month, and you're saying he hasn't called, he hasn't written, Right? That's what it's like when you say that. I just don't feel very close to God right now. Yeah, no wonder. You haven't opened up the Bible in, like, forever. But that still leaves us the question, like, they've heard his voice. It's super clear what his will is. And people will come and they'll say, well, what is God's will for my life? Well, I've got an answer for that. You want an answer? We'll, we'll deal with that right now. I can't think of a, a more intentional, specific answer and the Apostle Paul gives us. And I'm, I'm deviating. I don't, I don't like to do this. I like to stay in the text, but it seems to go in line with the thought process here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Throw that, throw that up on the screen. You know what the will of God is for your life? Well, some of you guys know this. For this is the will of God! Right there! There's the answer! That you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, don't do that. That each one of you Know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That's also God's will. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentile pagans who don't know God, paraphrase. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, this is really important. Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So here's what Paul's telling the Thessalonians. 
You disregard what I'm saying? You're not disregarding what I'm saying. Disregarding what God is saying. You're saying, F you, God. Does it offend you a little bit that I said that? Yeah. I would be offended too if I was God. You disregard this, you're not disregarding what I'm saying. You're disregarding God himself. You're saying, screw you, forget you, God. I'm going to do what I want to do. People say all the time, I want to know what God's will is. Right there, literally, his will. Obey him. Abstain from sexual immorality. Don't do this. Like, being clueless is not an excuse for them, and it's not an excuse for us. Oh, I didn't know. That will not work with God. It won't. You've heard my voice. You've heard my voice. No ambiguity. No wondering what I really meant by it. And he goes on and he says this back in Judges chapter 2. He says, what is this you have done? That's the end of verse 2. What is this you have done? They know what they've done. He's not saying, can can you tell me? He knows all things. What is this you've done? Rhetorical device here. Rhetorical advice. Like, you need to sit there and think about exactly what you've done, little boy. You need to sit there and think about what you've done, little girl. What have you done? I know what you've done. Do, Do you realize? Do you realize it? See, so many people think they can just ignore God. They can ignore his instructions and that God's going to be cool with it. He's not going to be cool with it. Like, it's just going to be business as usual. As if he won't care or he won't notice or he won't see. It's, uh, it's wrong thinking. He's well aware of what's going on with his people. He's well aware. So he says in verse 3, So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall become, shall be a snare to you. So now I say, it can also translate also to as well, likewise. I say that because When he says, so now I say, it's not intended as an announcement of future judgment for failing to keep the covenant, but rather this is a a warning or reminder. From this point forward, like from this point forward, for now I say, like, this is this is what's gonna happen, right? I've been pretty tolerant, pretty patient with you, but from this point forward, like for now I say going forward. Things are going to be a little bit different. Things are going to be a little bit different, kids. Children of Israel. Church. And so this is a a reminder. God's not being impulsive here, guys, okay? He's not being impulsive. He's he's not being mean. It's it's a little bit of tough love. That's what's happening. And and really, more than tough love, it it reflects the statement here. It reflects God's his own fidelity, his own faithfulness. 
to past pronouncements. The, the most recent pronouncement was back in Joshua chapter 23. You guys remember that. That was the, the relationship sermon. I know it was everyone's favorite. <laughs> right? And, and Joshua warns the people, don't go, don't get involved in those romantic relationships, specifically with the Canaanite women. They're, they're, they will lead your heart away from God. Like, don't do that. Don't, don't go there. Like, don't get involved in those rela- romantic relationships you have no business getting involved with. But, but he is a Christian, but she's a Christian. I get that. Like, there, and there are times where both people, honestly, love the Lord, and probably it's just not right. It's not the right time or either the right person, and it's just like, no, okay? I keep that in the back of your mind as well. There are times, I think, and the answer is like, no, at least not right now. But his warning is, literally verbatim of what he says here, if you go and do this, it will be thorns in your eyes and whips on your side. Oh, it will taste like a great, cool glass of water going down. But as soon as you swallow, you'll realize, oh, what have I done? That's what sin does. There's all the enticement, all the appeal, and then once you taste it, it's, that was a mistake. And so he's warning him. He's warning them. Reminding them. Back in Joshua. And of course they say, Oh, we'll follow him. No, you won't. Yes, we will. Okay, well, we'll see. Okay, this is, this is kind of going back to. So God's saying from this point forward, it's going to be different. It has to be different. God's holding them accountable. He's, once again, he's not being mean here, all right? He's not. He loves them. Some of you, maybe you've seen, like, really bad parental strategy. Little Billy, again, he's misbehaving. Mom, dad, whoever. Little Billy, if you do this one more time, if you, if you, if you do, bing. <laughs> Little Billy, one more time. I'm going to give you one more chance. And, of course, you know how the story goes. The, they, they never actually take any any discipline, right? It's just all threats, all warnings. And of course, it's not really a loving thing for little Billy. They're just, they're, it's not helping little Billy. Like they keep having to redraw the boundaries because they never actually stick to their guns and what they actually said. Really, what they're saying is not even true. What God is saying is true, right? Here's the line. I'm sending my envoy, my representative. He's coming. He's going to give you one final warning. I've been very gracious. I've put up with a lot of your garbage and I'm drawing the line. And no, if it's crossed again, okay, you're going to get the paddle in your behind. He's not being mean here. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. Because what will happen, right? Like, it'll be a snare to you. And so God here is holding them accountable. A lot of times people, whether it's boundaries or dieting, they, they love accountability in the beginning. They love it, right? New Year's resolution. You know how that goes. Every week is waning and just falling behind. and That happens, right? At the beginning, oftentimes our commitment to God, we're so passionate, right? We're, I'll use the term, on fire, right? We're, we're so zealous for the Lord. We're pumped. We're super motivated. And then what happens? It fades. I, I remember, goodness, 10 months ago, there was a gentleman. He said, Joe, I want you to hold me accountable. I'm in the relationship with this girl. Here are the boundaries. Hold me accountable. I said, okay. So I hold him accountable. But then he starts to not like it. Then he starts to resent it. Then he starts to get mad at me and angry at me. And then finally he says, you know what? Basically, screw you. Leave me alone. I don't want you to talk to me about this. And yet this is the same person who a few months earlier said, Joe, I really want to go about doing it the right way. 
But that's what happens. Like Christian on his way to the celestial city. Stay on the path, Christian. Stay on the path. Of course, you know, what happens along the way? Oh, here's a shortcut. He said stay on the path, but it's a shortcut, so I'm sure it'll work out. Right? That's compromise. Compromise takes you off the path. Compromise undercuts the zeal that we have at the starting line to truly follow God, and it pulls us off the path. It's going to be a snare to you. That statement right there, it will be a snare to you. It's a little bit ironic. You say, why is that ironic? Well, it's ironic because it's these false Canaanite pagan gods that are pulling them away. These false Canaanite pagan gods which are promising to offer them so much fertility, prosperity, security, and in their twisted theological thinking, they're thinking that this new freedom is going to be had in these and from these Canaanite gods, but they're going to be a trap. It's going to snare you like a fly caught in a spider's web. That's what sin does. It'll trap you. Sin promises so much and delivers absolutely nothing. Nothing. Sin says it'll be worth it, but in the end leaves you more empty than you were to start with. Sin deceives you. Sin leads you away from the living God. And sometimes you don't even realize you're being led away until you're a thousand miles away, off the path. It's going to snare you. It'll trick you. It'll deceive you. A lot of, a lot of tough love here. A lot of hard things the envoy, the angel of the Lord is saying. But then he comes to verse 4. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, which means weeping, weepers. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. What's their response? They're bawling their eyes out. They're bawling their eyes out. They're upset. They know they've messed up. They know they have not been honoring or obeying God at all. That's the issue. And so they offer sacrifices. They literally stop, have a worship service there to God. Right? We need to reorient, reorient ourselves because we have been really compromising here. We've got to stop this. Now, maybe some of us can take a lesson, take a page from this story. I think it's an appropriate response when we find ourselves having too much in common in this story. That's an appropriate response. They're broken over their sin. Brokenness is not a bad thing. Especially if you're grieved over your sin. Not a bad thing at all. See, godly grief leads us to repentance, the Apostle Paul tells us. That's, that's the difference. That's, that's the big kicker. That's what godly grief does. It leads us to repentance versus worldly sorrow. Yeah, I felt bad, but I'm just going to do it again later tonight or tomorrow or next weekend. So that's the good news. Not a bad place to be. The bad news is this kind of recommitment, you might say, the moment that they're having 
It's, it's a legit moment, okay? A significant spiritual moment. I mean, they changed the name of this place and called it Weepers, Weeping. But unfortunately, it's going to be a shallow moment, a short-lived moment. It's the sort of commitment that will happen for many people, just kind of like New Year's. They're going to make a resolution. They're going to kind of recommit. Bottom line, it won't stick for the people here in the story. It needs to stick. It should stick. It won't stick. And so this self-destructive behavior will continue. It's going to continue. They're going to continue looking for their joy, looking for their happiness, looking for their satisfaction, looking for their contentment in all the wrong places. In other people, relationships, money, job, the promises that the Canaanite gods offer when it comes to fertility and, and rain for the crops, right? It's, it's financial. They should be looking to God. Yeah. And earlier, like I said, that's what sin does. Sin promises so much, but in the end, it never delivers. Sin promises so much, but in the end, it leaves us empty. It leaves us with nothing. It is the worst gamble. It's one that never pays out. And what is supposed to be a successful military operation turns into an expedition of compromise. Compromise and, and more compromise. In the end, they're going to be snared again. They will repeat the self-destructive soundtrack of their lives. But when it happens again, they won't be met with another warning from the angel of the Lord when it happens again, they will be met with thorns and whips. They will feel the punishment of their rebellion against God. That's how it's going to go down. Not good. My hope for us is that we won't be foolish. Walk out the door. That was a nice story. That's it. Nothing more. Just a nice story. That's what the foolish person would say. The wise person would say, yeah, I don't, I don't want that to be me. God, don't let that be me, God. And so as the band comes, I want to pray for each and every one of us that this would be more than just a good story this afternoon. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. That's it. That's the only reason. Thank you for this story. And I pray that you would protect us from compromise. Protect us, God. Help us. Help us, God, not to repeat the same cycles of sin. And that we're no different from the people in the story of Judges. We need your help, God. And so, God, we join with St. Augustine as he prayed so many centuries ago when he would say, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, command whatever you want me to do and then, God, I want you to give me the power. Lord, give me the ability to do the very things 
that You've commanded me to do. So that when we hear Your voice, we do it. We obey You. We love You by obedience to Your commandments. We need Your help, God. Because compromise is knocking at our door every day. Sin is making promises to us that yes, we know it'll never be able to deliver on, but in that moment, it, it deceives us, it misleads us, it pulls us away from you. We don't want to be pulled away from you. So help us. Protect us. Fight for us. We need you. We always need you. But stories like this, God, they just illuminate it so much more. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.